Well, this is episode 31 of Talk That Talk. I'm your host, Fallon Stokes, and I have another special guest. We have Nisha Butler, former basketball standout, actually classified as an NYC point guard in that new documentary series that's on Showtime. I saw it last night, Nisha. It was awesome. Um, yeah, let me give you your flowers. That was pretty dope hearing that story because I didn't even know some of your background just in how you grew up and just, you know, going through the dynamics of hooping in New York. But we're going to get into all that just to give some of your background. You were born in NYC, Brooklyn, New York, and then you uh, moved to Aruba for a little while and, and grew up, spent some of your childhood there, came back to New York City eventually, where you started playing basketball and, you know, just playing for schools around the city, but just some of your accomplishments. You attended Riverdale Country School. That's where you graduated high school. And, you know, you were a basketball standout, one of the top players in the country. When you came out of high school, I mean, let's listen, let's talk about some of these accomplishments. Broke the New York record for scoring in high school, scored uh, 3,127 points with the career average of 28 points a game. That's insane. Um, and then... New York City, all city team, four years in a row. The only other person to ever do that, <laughs> Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Right. Um, yep. And then you decide to go to Georgia Tech. You win ACC Rookie of the Year, led the conference in scoring, averaging about 19.3 a game. Um, and then what you were a first-team All-American, freshman All-American that season as well. You went to play in the WNBA, playing for the New York Liberty, and then eventually you retired and now you have pivoted and you are, you know, in this whole realm of teaching coding and computer science to the youth, the kids around the country, whether it's online or in your city in New York, um, even having a storefront right now, which is Steam Champs with your ball and technology nonprofit. But now you are franchising and, you know, providing storefronts and opportunities for kids and underdeveloped neighborhoods as well as just you know privileged kids who can do it too right. want to learn about coding and you know growing in that avenue so welcome to the podcast i'm so happy you could join me today thank you so much for having me fellas <laughs> we go back girl teammate <laughs> uh you know i've been trying to get you on the podcast for a while so when you know our schedules would allow it and you were able to join i was like let's get it going okay. so let's just start it up talk about growing up in new york city um you know, when you came back from Aruba and then, you know, just starting your journey in basketball? Well, you know, like most immigrants, um, my family's no different. It was a better life academically, I have to say, and make sure that's specific. Um, in New York City, uh, my mom was a teenage pregnancy and she had big dreams and big hopes for herself and for me. And um, she felt that uh, New York City is where she needed to be because most of my family actually goes to Holland. She's the only person, my grandmother, the only person in my family that went to New York because uh, Aruba's a Dutch island, so all of my family members are actually in Holland. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she came over here, she met my dad, who is a hooper and who is all about education. And, you know, um, when I was about to get skipped from my Catholic school, my mom was really concerned about my like emotional growth um, as a kid. She's like, if she needs to be skipped, she's not in the right school. <laughs> you know, we, we need to change this. And, you know, being young um, and, you know, the statistics for a teenage pregnancy is not the best. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, my dad came in and, and this is why family unit is so important because as a family, they were able 
to get me in Columbia Prep, which is another private school, and ultimately at Riverdale um, as a graduate. And, you know, New York City is, is the land of opportunity. Um, and in both realms, I went to a very prestigious high school, but also um, my dad, who grew up in New York City, is like, she needs to get more um, uh, challenging basketball <laughs> activities. So it's really interesting. I was like, yo, she needs to get out of the school. They put me in Riverdale. My dad's like, yo, she needs to play outside of the school. So they put me with gauchos. Um, and it's a really cool thing about being from New York City is because I was able to have it. Like I grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in Washington Heights. I grew up in the Bronx. But just a train stop away, I was able to pursue my career in academics and when the prestigious high school and also play with point gods and goddesses of New York City. So I, I had a really great um proven ground that I was younger for both things. Got you. So talk about some of your mentors growing up in New York, you know, whether it was on the basketball side, academically, you know, who, who were the people who kept you grounded, you know, in your journey? Well, in, in my household, it was, and you know, my mom, it was my parents. <laughs> um, I think that it was, and as I'm an adult, I get why that's so important. Uh, my dad uh, didn't allow me to watch television until I was 14 years old. So it was really interesting from, you know, age of eight to 14. Um, I really was into books and reading and building stuff and tinkering. Um, and, and that was really, they, they were, and I say this, cause I think it's really important because it helped me a lot. So I was really hyper-focused in my creativity and what did they want me to learn on the flip side of it is growing up in a private school where it's majority white, and it's a majority of ways. I already had a solid foundation in who I was, the standard of beauty, which was cool in my house, um, and confidence. And that enabled me to wherever I go, I was who I am and confident in that. Um, so my parents did an absolute excellent job at uh, loving me and pouring into me and being my role models. Of course, I did have an awesome coach, Walter Welch, who really um, was one of my favorite basketball coaches, and Dave Jones, who's my first coach at Gauchos. Um, and those two people... Um, really helped me. And, and Ted Staneke, which was my principal um, at my Catholic school who supported women's basketball. So I think those three men, in addition to my dad, but my dad was the first, um, were really influential in helping me. And my mom, and my grandmother, as far as female role models and who I looked up to the most. Got you. So let's talk about, you just mentioned gauchos. I mean, you were the first female to play with Gauchos, which is a powerhouse AAU program. Tons of NBA players have come out of that program. But how did you even get introduced, first of all, and then start working with the type of athletes, you know, Stefan Marbury's who will come out of there, you know, um, just tons of great point gods. How did you even get connected with Gauchos? So my dad's a New York guy, you know, lived in Harlem, grew up in the Bronx. And when he when they put me in private school and recognized that I wasn't going to get challenged or learn anything from the coaches and, you know, the students, he brought me down and he's like, dude, I'm picking you up. We're going to Gauchos. I had no idea what that was. Um, so I, I walked in, you know, and I was really skinny, really scrawny. And my dad walked right up to coach and was like, look, this girl can play. And I want, what he said was, I want her to get better. Um, we will be here all the time. Trust me. She's not going to give me any problems. And he looked at me like, you're not going to give this man any problem. And, um, it to Dave Jones credit, Dave Jones coach, Steph, um, Mark Jackson, Sham got like, Dave is one of the best coaches. He looked at me, you know, and I just was looking at it smiling and he said, get on the line. And, um, I was like, 
because I had all my stuff and I took all my stuff off, put my sneakers on, and I got online and I was running with the boy. But what happened was I ran track. So the first thing that they put me on was running and I was in shape. Come on, like tracks, track athletes, we can run for days, you know? And so at that 10, 20 suicide, and they were really running 10, 20 suicide. I had the stamina. And when they said, what? The girl beating you. That's what they called me. The girl for a long time. The girl in Munchkin. So small. The girl beating you that all of a sudden he knew that a, I was, you know, going to work hard and I didn't have a problem with shining. I didn't have a problem beating the boy. And then he just put me in. And so playing with them, playing with Andre Barrett, the boys are stronger, quicker, and faster. That is, this mm-hmm. is a scientific fact. Um, but I was able to, after they beat me down a couple of times, uh, gave me a couple of broken noses. Um, I was a part of the family. And so, you know, I, I gained the respect of the boys in addition to um, the coaches. And so, you know, there was a point in time that I was like, Lou, who Lou Adalmeida was the owner and creator of Gauchos, I, he would come to the practices. And I was like, Lou, we need a girls team. I'm sick of uh, the bathroom is bad. We need better things. And he looked at me and he was like, all right. <laughs> He's like, you want a girls team? All right. You know, we get 15 of yous. We're okay. And the interesting part about it, he said, yes. He told Dave, okay, we're going to get a girls team. And then they told me, who's the coach? What do you want to do? And I thought of Walter Welsh. And he was the first girls gaucher coach. And everything was kind of went through me. So at like 15, 16 years old, I was like, well, you got to go to this thing. And, blah, blah, blah. and um, of course, Walter took it over after that. But that's how it happened. It was just, I just went up to him like, I'm sick of playing with boys. Their, their elbows hurt, you know. And even when boys get 12, 11, 12, 13 is not bad. When they get 15 to 16, they're like grown men. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so um, that was a point in time when I petitioned to get a girl squad in there. Okay. When, when did you realize or recognize that you were pretty exceptional in basketball? Um, Pretty early on, uh, and mainly because of the track. Um, you know, I was the eighth grade special in the USA Today. It's the only time that's ever happened. Um, I was on it with, like, Shamik, who's older than me. And, you know, I had a lot of um, – different proving gowns. So in New York city, there's this big tournament called golden hoops and mm-hmm. I played with the boys, but I also played with the senior girls and we were losing to the Philly bells. And so at the end of the um, end of halftime, I was at the, when I mean bench fell, I was like the lot, pretty much next to the water girl, you know, I was at the end. And so we were losing the guy who used the coach um, and guy Hughes is another uh, role model I had. He was like, all right, much get in the game. And I was like, really? Oh, and wind up getting MVP, scoring 24 points against the girls, the Philly Bells. And that was when the legend started. Um, and I was 12 mm. because I, I worked. When you when you play against 17-year-olds and you score 24, the best players in New York City and the best players out of Philly, you know, people are like, yo, she got game. I was just small. I was five foot three for like until I was like 14, 15. I was small for a while. And God was like, hey, you need to grow. So I grew. I'm not. Okay. So talk about when you're finishing high school, you're being recruited, you know, by schools all around the country, you know, who were your top five choices and how did you choose, choose Georgia Tech? So you know my mother, right? So I had my, I had my choices and then they had theirs. And so they, and my parents style, they just crossed out mine. It was like, no, this is it. And so what happened was I wanted, I liked UConn. Um, at that point, you know, Junior Ariamba was awesome at that point. Um, and it was close to home. I, I like uh, Rutgers. Um, I did go to a couple Ivies. I went to Columbia, Harvard. Um, and my top was Notre Dame, um, Stanford, 
um, UVA, uh, Duke, uh, UNC, which I really, really liked, uh, NC State. So they crossed off UConn like extra hard. They crossed off <laughs> NC State. They crossed off UNC. Even I was like, Michael Jordan went there. Like, no. Um, and they left Notre Dame, Georgia Tech, Stanford, uh, and Duke and Harvard, you know, um, and I was like, I'm not going to Harvard. I went to Harvard's gym, by the way. And when you're a young kid and you've always been to private school and mm-hmm. you go to Georgia Tech, you go to Stanford, you go to all these different dope gyms and then you go to Harvard's gym, which is really nice and classic and woody. You're like, mm. you know, um, and so I like Notre Dame. Uh, I like Georgia Tech, UVA. Um, and, and so what happens, I took my visits to those. And when you go to Atlanta, you know, and, and it is, it's Atlanta is an experience in and of itself. And I didn't, re- I went to go away from home, but not like in a suburban area. Um, and then my parents, I was like, oh my God, please, Georgia Tech, please. And they're, well, it's an engineering school. All right, you can go. <laughs> and that's really, that's how that went. <laughs> and like, I, they did like, you know, LSU was really big, Louisiana Tech, all these other school. I loved because the basketball, they were on TV. And then my parents, they were like, no, you have to go to a good school first, second basketball. And that's how that went. So Okay. Okay. Now, Stefan Marbury, he was influential in getting you to Tech, right? Yeah. So, it, <laughs> yeah. So my dad went to school with um, Bobby Crimson's brother. And Steph was like the big thing out of New York City. He was a, he's a few years older than me. Um, but you know, they had Steph call, they, you know, and, uh, a couple people, you know, when I, when they flew me out there to see everything, it was just such a great experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a New York experience. Another thing is, you know, I'm the only child going away from home. You know, they, they, my dad really, my mom didn't really want me to go to Stanford cause it was too far. Right. And when I went to Notre Dame, I stepped in like six feet of snow and I was like, this is not for me. Um, and really it was Virginia and Georgia Tech. You know, Virginia was an awesome um, visit. I remember that very well. It was really cool. Debbie Ryan was Debbie super Ryan. Cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was really dope. Um, but again, when I went to Georgia, I felt home. Steph was going to be there. Everybody everybody had a house there. You know, you go to Atlanta, there's a black mayor, you know, black police chief, you know, black people. Right? It was more black people in Atlanta than in New York. Yeah. <laughs> it, was like, it was crazy for me, you know. And then my visit, similar to how I did you, I <laughs> with the guys team as well. So Kenya was my, um, my visit, but I also had the male influence and the, the, the guys team out as well. And I was like, I'm coming here. <laughs> yeah, that, that's all we need to say about that. <laughs> Atlanta was where it was. So I got you. Um, okay. So you get to Georgia tech and we talk about, you know, your freshman year was insane. Um, ACC rookie of the year led the conference in scoring why do you, okay, did you have some feelings about not getting ACC player of the year and you led well, the conference in scoring? My thing with going my first year, because I did come from private school, you know, everybody didn't think that um, I was going to play well. You know, it was just coming out of New York City. Oh, she went to private. You know, it was just, I didn't go out of the typical Christ the King school. And I went, you know, a, a different route. At that time, Georgia Tech wasn't high in ACC. Like, no one understood how tough my parents were. So, you know, picking Georgia Tech, coming out, being one of the top players in the city, people were a little baffled by that. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't understand who I had to answer to. Um, but when I came in, you know, um, it, it was an adjustment period in the beginning because of the weights and the schedule. Like I had to get my 
head around just being a college student and being a college student, a student athlete. And we both know it's more like athlete student. Um, My body was just like, dude, private school, we practice half court for like maybe an hour, maybe an hour. (laughs) Like that's a... Where it's you know it's not weights individuals this and that so I it took me a couple months and I really struggled and beginning I'll never forget this and like so you know Coach Cage like our, we were playing not boo boo but you know like in the beginning before the ACC hits they're not the best schools it's like Sam right. it's like X Y Z school whatever and I struggled and I just didn't um you know my mind you know my I, I really was just ma- majorly tired and so I imagine Coach Cage like damn, you know, <laughs> oh, what am I going to do with this girl? And so our first ACC game was against UNC. Okay. I was so excited because back then we played in the gym that Mike played in. Mm-hmm. Mike played in. And so, and it was on TV and you know, my coach Walter, like cursing up a storm, like you better, whatever. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to play. And I was, and, and they, you know, profiled me, whatever. Dude, I, I have a killer speech. You know, I'm, I'm killing it. My first, and I'll never forget, my first shot was an air ball. So you know how we do the layups and stuff. So I had the layup, but my first shot's, oh, 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 air ball. And you know the Duke and UNC fans are horrible. Yeah. And all eyes was on me. Thank God the cameraman didn't show the, the should be shooting. <laughs> he should have shot. And in my heart was like, I got to get myself together. <laughs> Just, I had all these whatever. So we go in and um, we play at UNC, and Ashley is running the point at that okay. point. So UNC, Nikki T's is six foot. That point guard actually is five, six, maybe five, five. So she's running the point at that point and they're pressing and they're doing all kinds. It was horrible. We, um, we didn't, we weren't, we weren't winning. Coach um, made the switch and put me at point guard. And you find, you know, I barely knew the two plays. I definitely didn't know the <laughs> point guard plays. So I knew one play and that was clear it out. <laughs> and so we were losing and they sat Ashley down. They ran me the point and I'm a natural point guard, you know, like I can score. And so North Carolina wasn't used to, you know, New York city point gods and goddesses. We break presses very easily. Like mm-hmm. we do, you know, I when they, that's the first thing you learn. <laughs> I was like, press me, please. So, I remember we came out and we got it within five points and I was killing. And that was the first, and that was our first ACC game. I had 28 points. I, and I remember these stats because my coach called me out. I had 28 points, but I, w- I missed 11 free throws. Mm. We lost by like eight. We, we lost within those free throws. Um, but I remember that that is when I knew because UNC won the championships like two years ago. They still, Nikki is the best in the country, won a Brown. Um, I was like, I got this, you know, this is my team. And so when I, when I knew that I scored 28 against UNC, but like eight against Sanford, I realized it wasn't, I just had to learn the game like in college, which was pretty much pro for ours. Um, right. Figure our way through it. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. Faster pace, different game. Um, yep. And having to juggle so much and, and so balancing. That's the hardest thing. That's the hardest part. Yeah. Um, did you feel any pressure? Like, you know, being one of the top players in the country and coming in, even if it was at Georgia Tech, all this added pressure that you had to come in and perform right away. Did you feel I that? About it is, again, I think because my parents had such a tight hold on me when I was younger about pressure, they taught me things. Like, you, you know, my dad, he sets the bar really high, but that was how it was in my family. I'm not really 
and you, you know, you play with me pressure. I thrive on that. Right. You know, I don't have a real, I don't care where we're playing against Duke and you got Michelle Van Gorp dunking on us. I don't care. <laughs> some herb sick, sick. I don't care. That's the New York inside of me. Like I actually dude, I had 28 against you would see an eight against Sanford. You know what I mean? Like that's not, <laughs> um, I'm not really, I, I'm very hard on myself. Like my competitiveness against myself, um, outside pressures, you know, um, you know, I definitely struggle in other areas, but, um, no, I look at it as a challenge and, and, you know, I'm not afraid to lose. I'm mm-hmm. not to give it all and, and come sure. I just, I just rebound really quickly. So I don't have a problem with, with pressure. No, that was easy for me. <laughs> okay. Talk about what was like one player or one team that you wanted to play against once you got to, you know, college or playing in the ACC. Nick Teasley. So I, I don't know if I told you the story. So what happened was, uh-huh. and I got in trouble for this. Nick Teasley came down on Daniel Donahue and it was a two on one, her and Wanda Brown. Uh-huh. And she came down and I was trailing. I mean, I tried to play defense, but you know, apparently he came down, did that DC, whatever. Put the ball on D's head and elbow past it. And I was like, oh, (laughs) I was like, like we were in the park, like, oh, did she just I forgot that what team I was on. I I have never seen that play in a game. Right. The game, like she had in she in a get and oh yo, and it worked like (laughs) man. And then you know, I and then I got smacked. Full face frontal by Wanda Brown. So playing against <laughs> see, you know, they were they were so good. Mm-hmm. I love playing there, and you know, the fans were awesome. I really like playing against and they won the championship. So mm-hmm. I knew that we and we beat them. Yeah. We needed playing us because after that first game, we beat them a, a, quite a few times. I mean they, they got us, you know. Yeah, no, but it was some good battles. I, I used to love playing against UNC too. It was fun. They were so athletic and they only played one way. It was just like the men up and down. It's like a race. Who's going to out duel the other team? And that's what it comes down to. Yep. So your sophomore year, that's the year you tore your ACL, right? Fourth game. Okay. So, you know, you coming off of this stellar season your freshman year. And, you know, I know the sky's the limit for you your sophomore year. You were probably projected first team ACC. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What happened? What happened? Or how did you have to adjust? You know, talk about that injury and, you know, having to work through it and adjust. Yeah. Well, me and G, we went back to New York for the summer. That mm-hmm. summer. I had to mature. Um, I had to work and, and we didn't want to stay in New York. And we went to the Gauchos and we were good. You know, um, and I mean, good. I think, I mean, I was pulling up from half court. Like G was right. Like we were, this was, uh, to me, this was the best season that happened but never happened. You know, um, and I remember it was the fourth game I was going in. I had 25, uh, 25, 27, 24. Like my scoring up until that point was nice. Like I was in shape, ready. You know, you guys voted me captain. Like I was like, Let's, this is my year. Um, against NC State, first couple seconds of the game, um, I went up for a shot, I think, and I tore my ACL. And that was at that point, the most devastating thing that could happen. Now, listen, in life, what is that? It's nothing. Before a 19-year-old, 20-year-old, whatever kid, you know, I I never was not able to walk. You know, Mm. I was able to see my thigh muscle atrophy. Like, like it was, you know, it was very tough for me because I just, I feel like I just got this basketball thing down. You know, I got everything done, um, you know, it, it, in school, everything was just something that 
Um, and then the dynamics of being a young kid and then realizing, wow, she's great. And then not being informed, the different dynamics with the coaches, the different dynamics, the school, you know, you have, you know, I brought a lot to Georgia Tech. First time it ever happened for girls basketball coming in. And that was gone within the blink of an eye. So it's just one of those things that, that was tough. That was a tough period in my life, you know, as a human being, um, just not being, and it was, it's not about, it's just not being able to walk. Right. You know, forget, forget playing, walking. So that was really it. Okay. Now transitioning, you, you eventually, you know, you leave Georgia Tech, you go to the WNBA, eventually playing for the New York Liberty. Um, you play for a couple other teams or was it just the Liberty? No, the Liberty is um, when I got signed as a free agent and that's what I played for. Um, and I went out and tried out with um, the Phoenix Suns at that point in time. And I went, th- those were pretty much the only person, I, the only team I got signed by um, was the, the Liberty. I went okay. into, tried out for Phoenix, got hurt during it, tore my quad during the Phoenix trials and then New York, I mean, it was just, you know, if, if you blink, well, you blink, you missed my career <laughs> in the WNBA. Um, so I got signed and I got in um, Liberty. I was out there, played, got waived. Tore, and then that was, I broke my says boy bone. And then I went into, um, did I go overseas? I remember overseas or before, after I forget. Um, uh, no. And then I, I got a job on wall street and that's when I worked in crude, crude oil and natural gas <laughs> at that point. So, you know, people don't recognize it. Like it was, I signed a contract for like 26 or $25,000. Um, and then on wall street, let's just say I made almost 10 times that. Right. Um, and it was just same age, you know, I was working for the biggest clearing corp in, um, America on the, you know, I was the only woman of color in, uh, the silvers, uh, in, in crude oil and natural gas. Uh-huh. And that, people don't understand, um, option, uh, my, my mentor was getting me geared to trade options, but I was in, um, if, if anyone knows wall street, that's actually what we were. It's not, um, stocks it's commodities. And okay. I it was what I got an opportunity to work in there. And that's, uh, it's a great opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. All right. Now we're going to talk about your little journey. Not little, but your journey in movies and film. Okay. Now, now let's talk about this. Uh-huh. We are, we'll start with the NYC point, guys. I just said I watched the documentary. You know, you had, uh, um, you know, you had some great footage and just discussing about your journey of playing basketball. You know, the likes of point guides from New York. We talked about Steph, you know, Rod Strickland. You know, Kenny the Jet Smith, Mark Jackson, Sham God. I mean, that's just to name a few, but it's so many greats that have come out of there. And you were one of about two other females that were on that documentary. So that's awesome in itself. Mm-hmm. But talk about love and basketball. Now we know we're going to break this up. So yeah. I'm just telling you, me being a freshman, when I came to Georgia Tech in 2000, that's all you heard about. Even yeah. I think Coach B on my recruiting visit was like, yeah, we got a, you know, Nisha Butler. Who doesn't know Nisha Butler? I mean, that was all around the city. You know, in Atlanta, basketball was booming and you knew about Georgia. UGA was always good. Yep. Great teams, had pros, but Georgia Tech was one you didn't hear about until you got there. Yep. So it changed the whole dynamic and made Georgia Tech more appealing. Mm-hmm. But that loving basketball opportunity that you had. Yeah. Between you and Sanaa Lathan yep. in the end. Yeah. And you had to make a tough decision. Talk about that experience and, you know, deciding to choose basketball in the end. 
Um, so that's that actually. So the true story is, uh, I was on spring break, and you know how we always prank each other. So they called me up. Um, I, we, we were wilding out in spring break, and I get a call from Spike Lee and my mom. And everybody's calling me, and so um, I answer the phone, and it's like, "Hey, Niche, you know, Spike is Spike. Like he's like, you know, hey, you know, I'm Spike. Like uh, get on the plane. Like he wasn't really like, hey, Spike Lee. So I didn't recognize it was Spike because. Y'all always pranking me. So I was like, yeah, sure, Spike. Uh-huh. Okay, I'm out. Click. Hang on. Hang on. I was Spike Lee like two times. And I go out and party. Come back. It's 20 messages my mom. You did what? You hung up on what, girl? If you don't get on that plane and read that script, right? And I was like, whoa. Like, it was crazy. Coach B called. Coach K. They were trying to find me. We didn't have the regular. We had like the, no, we had like the two-way. But it was just really bad. It kept saying yeah. So I get in, there's a script down for me. I finally speak to Spike. I'm like, sir, I'm really sorry. Um, my bad. Um, I met Spike back when I was young. So he was cool. He's like, yo, I really want you to read for this. Um, get You got to get on the plane. You got to leave because we need you now. So I get on the plane. They have this big limo. It was Millie D. And I'm like, whoa, I get on the plane. I'm in California. Uh-huh. Um, I go there. They put me up, you know, real Hollywood, like in the middle of Sunset Boulevard. I'm chilling. They're like, yo, you got to read these lines, whatever. Now I have to take acting classes before. So I get it. And this is me anyway. The, the, the thing is me. And luckily the, the script was written by Gina Prince Bidewood, who's an athlete. People, people don't know. Homegirl is a real athlete from UCLA, like legit, legit. Oh, wow. So she wrote us like us. Um, I go in there and, um, I auditioned for it. She's like, yes, you know, she's down into it. I love her or whatever. Now I'm in the streets, like I'm in LA and I'm like, whoa. So my parents can get to me. Like we're only studying. I think they put me with an acting coach for two hours. And <laughs> after that, I'm done. So they can't find me. Right. So then Gina's like, I want her to come back. And I came back a couple of times. And then when they were looking more and more and I got the part and stuff like that, my mom calls and like, yo, I don't want my daughter out in the street. She got to stay with you. So I wanted to, that's how I read Gina cool. I had to stay with Gina because my mom didn't want me out in LA for a while. So coach was cool with it. Everybody was cool with it. We're going to make it work. Right. So then it comes down. They're like, we have to do the NCAA. Um, uh, my, just make sure my eligibility. It was really a formality. Like right. they, so we get on, it's me, my mom, my lawyer, and um, the NCAA. And we got a horrible NCAA person. Because now I found that we whatever. And they're like, no, if you do it, you got to leave school. Now, mind you, I'm the first only child. I'll be the first one. My mom's a nurse. That's an associate's degree. I'd be the first one graduating from four-year university in my family, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and they were like, what, you know? And, and, and then they're like, no, she can't get paid. After they said that we said, okay, cool. Gina and, and, and they were going to hook it up so that they were going to figure out a way that I get paid per diem, but not actually sell it. They were like, cool. And then they said, um, we went back and they're like, we're going to do it anyway. Everybody was good with that. Cause I couldn't do any promotion for the film. Wow. So, Everybody's like, how is she going to be the lead role and can't do any promotion? You know, can't be in the film, can't do nothing, like nothing. Um, and then my dad was like, no, you know, and he, you know him, he rarely says no. But he was like, he doesn't, it was like a circus to him, Hollywood. Like, and he wasn't really involved. In it. it was really my mom. I got you. So my dad was like, no. Um, and his reasoning was she goes out there, she, whatever. What, what is that? They were going to film it during um, the summer. So I would have been able to still go to school, but I wouldn't be able to play. And so my mom decided like, at that point, I was like, we're going to work it out. Don't worry, Nisha, you're going to do it. Like, my mom was with it. 
But my pops was like, no. And then we had to, you know, we couldn't do it because it was just one of those things that like, I get it. I should have did it because we could have petitioned. But I get a family not knowing. Yeah. It's like we did everything to go to Georgia Tech. I was about, and this was right after my freshman year before I got hurt. Mm. So they were just like, you know, it was a great year. My dad's like, stay the course. You know, you do movies later. He don't understand the movie business. Like, there's not no love in basketball, too, right? No. <laughs> I still mess with this day. I'm like, Dad, I just look at him like, he's like, I didn't say that. I didn't. I was like, we both know you said it. But, um, and so, but for me, full circle, I get it. You know, like, I don't, you know, you never, I really love my life right now. Um, I'm, I'm super excited. And it was a great experience for me. Uh, Gina Prince Bidewood, dude, she needs the win. Uh, an Academy Award for the Woman King. Really I have awesome. seen her. It was Love and Basketball, then Secret Lies of the Bees, then like the Woman King. Like Homegirl is like even people are like, how do you feel after that? So how I feel is first of all, it was written so well mm-hmm. that I Lathan, it could have been like so. Now I did a great job as an actor. She killed it. It didn't really matter because that film was just such a great love story and and just well written. Like if you really look at it from that lens, like it would have been super nice, of course, if a a female basketball, because it just would have been better, like athletic scenes, you know what I mean? But in women's basketball, it's not like, you know, the difference between me, Duncan, you know, or something, it just would have been smoother. (laughs) Um, But the movie was so much more. And like, for me, dude, there's nobody that has that story, but me. And I, and I embrace it. And again, I'm, I'm okay with that. You know what I mean? Like, and so it is what it is, but that's the story we, we, there, NCAA, as we all know, it's horrible. Like I could have yeah. now 20 years too late. Yeah. I mean, look, look, that's what I said. Fast forward. We got um, NIL deals, name, image, and likeness, and you would have been able to do it. Do it. No problem. You know, but see, I think sometimes, like sometimes people need to understand that trailblazers, you know, that, that is a heavy burden to bear sometimes. Like I've been the thing about it in my life. I've been the first of a lot, you know, first in gauchos, I got two broken noses for that. I got a lot of, you know, heartache at first at girl um, at IMG. That was hard and lonely. Try Like I've been a first, even with my business now, like there's a lot of walls I'm hitting and stuff like that. But because I've been a first in a lot of times in my life, I have grown and learned to embrace it. Mm-hmm. No, and 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 honestly, that's the whole part. It's like I want to leave for the people coming behind me, and just like that, like I hope there's another. There's not gonna be another Lumbas basketball. That movie's just so dope. Yeah, awesome. I hope I see more athletes able to, you know, capitalize uh, and monetize their image of the stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a big deal. Um, so let's get to it. Let's talk about balling technology and what you're doing right now. Yeah, um, you know, with Steam Champs and what you're bringing to your own community, going back to going back home, opening a storefront yeah. where you are actually teaching computer science to kids and making it more interesting to the youth. Talk yeah. about this experience. So, you know, cause you live in Georgia, um, the Ahmaud Arbery case affected me. I think I had post-traumatic stress or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And I left, I left uh, Atlanta and I moved to Spain. Um, and when I went to Spain, I had to deal with seeing that image. Right. Um, you know, I bought four guns. Found, you know, me, I'm not even a gun person. Like mentally, as a black woman in America, I went through so much just visually seeing because I run. And I love the funny part is I love looking through houses. Right. 
internally, my mind, it just messed me up so bad that I was like, you know, you never really know the target. But, you know, I never really had to grow up with that. To be honest with you, I've been blessed. I never really have to experience racism. Really still don't. However, as a black woman, you feel you don't know how you can react to certain things. And seeing right. that video and knowing that I jog a lot in neighborhoods and it was so much. I went to Spain where I played in Canary Islands, which is a different lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I just had to figure out, like, go through that journey of America and, and COVID and die. It was just a lot um, as a human being. Um, while I was over there, uh, and prior to me leaving, I was mentored under the Lonnie Johnson's research lab in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and prior to that, I was working, um, teaching computer science in schools in Atlanta. So I met him because I was teaching CS in some schools um, with Microsoft. Microsoft hired us to do it. And um, he's like, dude, if you can be a software engineer at TCS, you can do robotics. And I was like, I don't know. So I mentored under him for two years and then they kicked me out. They're like, dude, you know enough to have your own team. And that's when COVID and Amart Arbery hit. So I had the skills for the last three years working as a software engineer, doing my startup, doing a bunch of stuff. When I went to Spain, um, I had a different life. Mm-hmm. Spent 10 years really different. And I got a contract with the Heidelberg School teaching robotics for their schools, English, Spanish, German school, go figure. Um, and I was so excited. And I told my dad, I was like, dude, I'm living this life on an island. And you know me, Fallon, this was it for me. All right. I was chilling on the beach, sun dressed every day. The Spanish teaching two hours a day, making good money. I was like, I'm staying here. I called my pops up. I'm like, oh, dad, this is interesting. It's great. Oh, I love this. And he was like, oh, really? Oh, okay. He sends me an article where... He mentioned to me that 78% of the New York City kids are uh, living on or, or below the poverty level. And I was like, poverty level? What's that? You know, it's like $30,000, $34,000 in New York City where I, you know, grew up. And I didn't recognize that because I went to private school. I didn't recognize that because, you know, we weren't super rich, but we weren't starving, you know, <laughs> like, and people suffer in silence. So sometimes it's not visible to you. You know, and when he said, and I checked it for the DOE stats, like this is something known. And then when I was doing stuff with Microsoft and doing CS student, I was like, wait, they're begging us to, you know, and people beg me to get a job and train me as a, a senior engineer, all this kind of stuff. The jobs are open, making six figures. Right. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I don't understand this. Like, you know, I looked up, there's over 150,000 jobs in New York State mm-hmm. that are open, six figures, and you got 78% of kids doing, um, living, uh, under the poverty level. And that affected me again to the point that I was like, okay, what, what could we do? What could we do about this? You know? And so I started teaching online, mm-hmm. uh, just with my family, um, and just with my friends, but I realized the kids, some of the kids, um, didn't have computers. Some of them couldn't afford the robots. And that's when I went home, uh, to my dad for his birthday, um, and he drove me to his, um, without actually my permission, he drove me to his old community center. And it's like, these are the kids you need to do it for do it for our kids. You know, you're over there in Spain. You need to come in, you know, you hear between and do a free class for our kids. You know, you know my dad. I was like, I don't think you can just walk into a community center. He's like, yeah, you can. We walk in the community center. Lo and behold, they're like, yeah, we're looking, we're coding, you know, I'm like, you know, like, yeah, it's like, all right, well, you know, this is what I can do. This is my cost. Like, yeah, we got grants for it. Don't worry. Um, and 
that started. And so um, I was paid uh, quite handsomely for that contract. And, you know, I had to do everything myself. You know, it was like, correct the curriculum, get the robots, find everything I did for myself. Right. Um, and then I decided I loved it, Fallon. Like, I, I you know, it, I got blessed because I have two loves. Like, I didn't know how much I liked teaching. I didn't know how much talent that mm-hmm. we are. We were in the South Bronx, right? Like, these kids soaked it up like they 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 were able to learn you know i had some rock stars of course not everybody some people struggle but it was so enriching that i could visually see some of those kids being engineers right. and i'm sure that they said that and it was, it was a program in that this was the first for some and um i was like you know instead of all the profits that i made i said let me do something with it let me open up because they didn't have it there's a lot of my centers are in affluent suburban neighborhoods and rarely are in urban areas and, um, you know, doing the, the, the money, doing the financials, you know, city, you have access to a lot of people, you have rich kids, you have poor kids, all within the block of each other, you know? Um, and I, I took a shot, you know, I went, I went to help it. I was fulfilled and, uh, we're here <laughs> and it's going great. So I'm super excited about the future. So talk about some of, you know, the curriculum of courses you offer, um, at Steam Champs, where you know people can either sign up or your online classes. How can they find out or get information about the courses? So everything is on SteamChamps.com, um, and I named it Steam instead of STEM, is because we do have arts and un- unplugged activities like painting and chess, and we're really fleshing that out. And the reason being is that, of course, the engineering nerdy kids, you know, already gravitate to Legos and building an architect engineer. However, I think that especially in our communities, we have to embrace art because we set culture. Most of the time we have to embrace kids that may be a little intimidated about technology. Maybe that's not their first love, but I think, you know, in a few years, everything is technical right now. We have to develop skills, especially in youth so that they're able to, be competitive in this job market that so, so desperately needs them. I mean, we talk about black and brown communities, but as a whole in America, only 3% of graduates graduate in CS. You yeah. know, it's not a lot, not a lot of engineers. We had it's to take that at tech. I was like, what? I tell people that to this day, they were like, CS. I was like, yeah, you had to yeah. take it. <laughs> you have to. It's mandatory. One year. Shout out to Cedric Stallworth for helping me do that. <laughs> like, we have to do it. And I just feel like, um, it's something that's not being talked about enough. This technical divide is real. The, like, so you don't think of it this way. You have parents that are holding down single parent households, holding down a household, doing odd jobs. The odd jobs that they barely are surviving on will be replaced by automation and AI and technology. Bottom So I feel like the divide is going to increase exponentially because now where the gap was, you know, trying to do these odds and jobs and, you know, having four jobs, whatever, they're going to be replaced. And then those people are going to be replaced. And what are they going to do? And then I have basic skills, basic technical skills, basic STEM skills, really. So I don't want to give people the opportunity to just survive. You know, $100,000, $150,000 a year can change generational problems like that. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, let's talk real here. Like, that's like, that's my, the reason why I'm here. The reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is a, it's a, it's a, it's a multifaceted, multi-pronged problem. You know, we, we mainly deal with five to seven year olds. I mean, five to 12 year olds, because that's the basic foundation. 
Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, girls are interested in STEM and they drop off tremendously at the ages of 13. Why is that? How do we change that? What is the support they need during these formative years, you know, to do it? And also, just me being represented, I didn't even recognize it. How me being a female helps the black girls. It you does. know, it's just like all we can do. It's you know, a funny phenomenon is white students, and we're the majority of white students. It doesn't affect them. If they're taught by a black person or a white person, it actually doesn't affect. Actually, being taught by a black person actually helps their skill as a character because they need some diversity in their upbringing, right? right. But it's a weird thing with our kids. It's, and I've seen this because I hired um, a white teacher and, and I saw a group of girls kind of get muted, not because of the teacher. The teacher was super cool and great. It's just they're not, it's so, so much insecurities around right women being a person of color that I was like, wait a minute, girls, I just had you last week. What's up until your person? With? And they just, yeah. it doesn't happen with mm-hmm. white kids. It doesn't happen with white girls. Have white, like, they're, they're who they are no matter what. <laughs> and right. it was cool. But it was weird how like I'm learning too and how to educate because I want to educate all kids that want to do it. Um, however, I recognize that we have to do more representing the kids because our kids learn differently. So, right. Interesting. That's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to hit you with my talk that talk questions. I call them the triple TQs. All right. In the show with this, though, you're going to give me whatever comes up at the, off the top of your head. Okay. So what advice would you give to student athletes struggling to figure out life after basketball? Great question. Um, well, the first thing is I feel like you got to know yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, and the first thing in college, which I think that they definitely need to hear is that we, and we, we say this a lot, ball is life. No, it's not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, it's not. You know, I, I, you know, recently lost my mother Mm. life and death, you know, my ACL injury, you know, (laughs) like what I, I recovered as I could play again, like losing someone you love, you know, and death is permanent. That's life. That's a life lesson. That's a life experience and you know, I wish that more student athletes took time to take a class not just to be eligible to join another student organization not just your teammates to try something and don't be afraid to fail it to start a business in, in school to do other things other than sports a because of the percentage of you becoming pro is not that high um, b because especially for women that's not where your wealth is going to be at. So, you know, I think you need to find out what you really enjoy and like other than basketball and also take time with yourself, figure out who you are. You know, I, I know for myself at Georgia tech, I had to grow. Right. My, my thing was maturity, just understanding who I am, what I want to be and, and being comfortable with that. So I encourage student athletes to find out who they are and go after other passions other than sports. Okay. Explain the impact that basketball has had on your life. As a female, um, I feel that my confidence, uh, my ability to just go out and try something, but also um, adapt to life's challenges is what basketball teaches. Like I, I wish more in our community, we can take from sports life lessons because they're really legit life lessons. I think sports help you know how to multitask. Sports help leaderships. Sports, especially women, helps confidence. Sports understands that when you lose a game, you can get up and win the next one. Right. Sports understands that in order to win a game, you need to practice. You need to study the book. You need to focus. You need to focus on yourself, not boys, not anything else, you know, um, distracting you. Like, yeah. 
sports has done so much for me as an entrepreneur and as a woman because it's given me basic foundational skills of life that as an adult, I'm able to recognize about the 10,000 hour rule. When you're an athlete, you learn leadership for 10,000 hours when you're 10 and you're, you know, the, the captain of your team, you know, multitasking, you know how to do different personalities since you're 10. These are the life skills that help you adapt, grow and create stuff. And that's, that's really important. Okay. And what is the legacy that you want to leave for future generations? Wow. That's a great question. Um, I have impacted um, people's lives in a positive way. And for me, touching one, uh, and I've already touched one, several, is something that I think um, is a legacy I want to do. I think that I have, um, I strive for excellence in my own personal life. Um, But the best excellence, interestingly enough, that I've ever felt for me is helping others achieve that. Um, And I think there's, I've been really lucky. There's been so many people that have helped me um, get to where I'm at to this day. And I feel that encouraging other people's um, journey uh, helps your own. And I, and I like, you know, I, mean, I love to shine bright. I'm so confident in a lot of stuff I do. And I, and I think that my ability to be confident in my light enables another person to shine their light, you know, because it's something that we can support each other with. So I think that the main thing is that, you know, especially with COVID, and what we've seen in the last couple of years is not in our lifetime. Right. You know, what's really important in life um, and how each of us can actually contribute to make, to be a contributing human. Um, and I think that that's my legacy. I want to contribute and pour into um, so many people because I've been blessed with great parents. I've been blessed with, um, blessed with great opportunity and privileges that I just want to help. Mm. I love it. So let me uh, congratulate you again. You know, recently you were just honored by Ebony Magazine, their Power 100 edition. STEM innovator. So that was awesome. You know, I enjoyed celebrating you about a month, month and a half ago. It was awesome. But I, I just love to see your growth. And I'm so proud of, you know, what you have become, what you are becoming as a woman, as an innovator. And, you know, you said it. You do encourage. You know, you're always encouraging me about stuff, you know, like still even pushing me. Fallon, you've been thinking about this. Why not this? You don't want to be governor. You don't want to be, you know, president. <laughs> it's like the sky's the limit. You know, you're always talking about talking with your friends, family, about pushing each other, you know, because you're right. You're going to shine bright all the time. You're going to yeah. keep doing what you do for you, yeah. but you pay it forward by doing it for others, too. So I want to applaud you and, and thank you for joining the podcast. This is awesome. Yeah. Always. I'm proud of you, too. All the show the way. You might have it better than Claudia on that one. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This has been oh. a- Thank you. But tell, tell my listeners and viewers, you know, where they can find you again, you know, with Steam Champs or, you know, Ballin Technology. How can they continue to follow you and see what you're doing? Right. Well, of course, we love donations at Ballin Technology. It's um, BallinTechnology.org. Um, steamchamps.com all of my handles are exactly the name at Nisha Butler at steamchamps um, google <laughs> website um, yeah we're looking for you know mentors as well if you guys have any I'm always growing my company and finding new ways to innovate um, and affect um, the kids coming up um, so yeah and I'm very accessible so you know send me a line drop me an email and uh, definitely continue to support our programs by sharing my posts by getting your kids into um, the classes um, and just supporting their journey. Uh, really, that's that's all I asked for. 
Okay. Well, this was another great episode. I appreciate you joining Niche and we're going to continue to follow you. So keep going and keep um, inspiring the youth and future generations. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. (laughs) Well, that was another great episode. I had the pleasure of having Nisha Butler join the podcast this week and she gave some inspiring words to just the next generation and just to the youth about her experiences as a student, a former student athlete, and now transitioning into her career as the CEO of Steam Champs, as well as Ball and Technology, which is her nonprofit. And she is really changing the dynamic, helping the community, her own community, by providing programs and courses for the underprivileged to enjoy computer science, learn, grow, and have new experiences that can help them in the future. So we want to applaud what Nisha Butler is doing. Continue to watch her journey. And again, thanks for being on the podcast, Nisha. Well, I'm going to do like I do every episode and I'm going to give my Black Business shout out for the week. And the Black Business shout out goes to Aether Brown for the Fig Tree Catering Company. He and his family, this is a Black owned family business. They started this catering company. And ever since Aether transitioned from college football or being a student athlete at Georgia Tech, he transitioned into the food industry. And he has been providing this service with his family for some time now. He's catered great events, whether it's been office parties, birthday parties, retirement parties, you name it, he's done it. His family can come to you if you're in the Metro Atlanta area. You need to go and check him out. So to see what Aether and the Fig Tree Catering Company is doing, you can simply look him up or look up the company on Instagram at the Fig Tree Catering Company CO, not the full spelling of company. Or you can go to their Facebook page, which is the Fig Tree Catering Company. And this time on Facebook, you spell company out. So go check out. See what Aether Brown and the Fig Tree Catering Company is doing. Schedule your next event. We have the holidays coming up. We have Christmas. We have New Year's, some family events, family gatherings. So if you want some fantastic food and some great service, y'all need to hit up the Fig Tree Catering Company today. And that's the Black Business shout out for this episode. Well, again, it was a pleasure to have Nisha Butler on the podcast. And she gave a great interview, threw out some great gems you know, for the youth and just for anybody who is looking for something inspiring to do, keep moving forward and keep pushing. But Nisha Butler is doing great things in the community. So we have to continue to support, give flowers when they are due. And I just had a great time just catching up with Nisha. But until the next episode, I hope you enjoy this one. We'll continue or I'll continue to put out good content, hopefully continue to sign up or have great guests scheduled for interviews so you can hear about experiences and just enjoy the content that Talk That Talk has been putting out for nearly two years now. But until the next one, this is episode 31 of Talk That Talk. Have a good one.